All right, well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, last week, we took a bit of a break to at least get some level of perspective of our, our, our God, of this God of vengeance. Um, and in the near future, we'll, we'll take some more time to explore biblical justice in particular and how practically we as a church can involve ourselves, walk out what Jesus has called us to walk out as agents of justice. So we'll take some time eventually as a church to dive into those things. We have a few weeks this week and next to finish up this series um, on addiction. And this morning, we're looking at the question, how does a church of addicts make it to the end? Remember, in some sense, Along the spectrum of addiction, we all fall on that spectrum. We all, in some way, shape, or form, experience the, the reality of addiction. Addiction is a problem of the heart, and the problem of the heart is a problem of worship, and we all experience that on one level or, or another. Some, some of our addictions are less consequential than other addictions, and some uh, addictions are kind of shaped and, and, and driven by greater or lesser pains that we all kind of carry. And nonetheless, we all, in some sense, carry the same problem. We are, if we could say, a church of addicts. So the question stands, how does a church of addicts make it to the end? Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole text, so just bear with it. It's a powerful text which gives uh, helpful context to the points that we are going to make here this morning. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, it states this, Holy brethren, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ, he is faithful over God's house as a son. And... We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, this is from Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving evil heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is written today, if you hear his voice, again, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Heavy text, I know. Uh, let's pray and ask the Lord's help. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word does not return void. Thank you that it is, as, as Psalm 19 says, it is sweeter than honey. Even a hard text like this, that is a bit, it, it's a bit brutal. God, thank you that this is supposed to be sweet because it comes from a God who is faithful and who is merciful to tend to the needs of his people. So God, we, we thank you. We thank you for your tender, merciful, faithful kindness to us as your people. So we pray that you would teach us how we make it to the end. Bring us the words in these moments. Spirit, instruct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a hard text, and therefore, before getting into the specifics this morning, I just want to like get the conversation, so to speak, on the train track so we can actually work with the text at hand. The stunning truth that, I don't know if you, if you heard it as we read through it, the stunning truth that so clearly stands out for us in this text is the fact that not all who confess Christ will be found in Christ. Now that's a hard pill to swallow, especially when we recognize our, our own failings, our own failures, our own, our own brokenness. But that's the truth that is being posed here. The fact that not all who confess faith in Christ will be found in Christ. Not everyone who names the name of Christ, in other words, will make it to the end. The writer of Hebrews plainly states, if we look at verse 14, for instance, he says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence in Christ to the end. Once again, it's saying that not all who confess Christ will be found in Christ. The point is not this, that you could lose your salvation but that you can prove that you never had it in the first place, in other words. Looking more closely at verse 14, it says, if we hold our original confidence in Christ to the end, then we are actually revealing that we are sharing in Christ. So if we're given to Christ, if we're pursuing Christ, if we're looking to Christ, that is, that is the touch point, that is the revelation, that is the mark of what an authentic Christian does and is. He looks to Christ consistently. So, is the point of the author in these moments to just kind of scare us, to kind of work on our insecurities in these moments? No, he's simply making the fundamental point that the mark of a true Christian, the mark of one who makes it to the end, 
It is not this confessing faith. It's not necessarily what you did in the past. It's not the point in time where you, you came to faith in Jesus. Not even your, your, the point of baptism where you confessed him publicly before others as important as all of that stuff is. The question and the point that the author is trying to get at is what are you doing with Jesus now? Are you taking confidence in him now? Are you leaning into him now? Are you, or are you adrift? You find yourself kind of, kind of focused in on other things, your heart drifting away from Christ. The, the call is to get after Christ. And the question then for us to consider, what are we doing with Christ right now? That's the point of the text. That's the, that's the weight that we feel when we read a text like this. The call is to go after Christ. The mark of a true Christian is not just this past confessing faith. No, it's persevering faith. It's what you're doing with Jesus here and now. That's the mark of an authentic Christian. That's the mark of one who will, who will make it to the end. So, how do we then, together as a church, who are not without our failings and without our difficulties, who feel the reality of addiction, if you will, at work within our own hearts. We, we know the ups and downs that we've experienced. And, and so how do we, as, as a church, how do we make it together to the end? How does a church of addicts persevere together in faith? Well, simple points this morning. We can only make it to the end, first and foremost, with the hope of Christ. The sole object of our persevering faith is Christ. He is our hope. Again, the object of our faith is not the past. It's not what we've done. It's not even the, 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 the highs that we have in terms of the ministry experience or the fruitfulness or, or the victories that we've won in the past. Our hope is not in the stuff of the past. Our hope that the author is getting at is and must be in Christ and in Christ alone. So the argument that the writer will make throughout this letter, and he'll specifically develop then these two themes from chapter 2, verse 17. So just a little bit before where we began reading, he states this, chapter 2, verse 17. He declares the truth of Jesus, that Jesus had to be made like his brethren in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He, the one who are persevering faith should land upon, is the one who is the merciful, faithful high priest who is able to help those who are being tempted, right? Our faith should be in this high priest. What is a high priest? It's one who intercedes between the people and God. And so Jesus is the one. He is the way into a relationship with, with God. He is the one by way of which we have this this, this intimacy with the Father, this relationship, but he's also then a merciful high priest. In other words, there is mercy for our failings. 
The author here is not saying that we are going to be perfect in our persevering faith. He's saying there's going to be trials, there's going to be setbacks, there's going to be a need for this merciful high priest. He must be the one that we place our dependence in, that we take confidence in, because we will need that mercy. We will have our failings. We will have our relapses. And yet it's this God of mercy who is the object of our persevering faith. We must look to Jesus. But this idea of a merciful high priest is not just the fact that we're going to mess up, and so he has mercy for us. Mercy also has in view the fact that he understands the depths of our limitations. He understands the burdens that we carry. He understands the hurt that we have. He understands the deep wounds of our soul in way in which we, in way in which we don't even understand, and certainly in which ways that others don't understand, that he understands the depths of our brokenness. He can sympathize with our trauma, with our triggers. He can sympathize with the deep wounds of our heart. He knows the experience of shame himself, so he knows the burden of shame that we at times carry. He's one who understands. He's one who comes to us. And he's one that, therefore, the author, if you, if you know the book of Hebrews, it's that popular verse in chapter 4, verse 16, just right across the page there, where he says, because of this merciful high priest, here's what you have at your disposal, is to draw near to the throne of grace that you might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. As the merciful high priest, as the one that should be the sole object of our persevering faith, he's the one who's there to help us in all our brokenness and in all our failings. He's the one who says, come boldly to the throne of grace. I've made a way for you to come and find mercy. He is our merciful high priest. He is the one that we lean into. He's the one we take confidence in. But he's not only the merciful high priest, he's also the faithful high priest. He never stops working on our behalf. We see this as chapter 3 opens up. There's a contrast between Moses and Jesus, and it's Jesus who was not only faithful as a servant like Moses was faithful, but Jesus now is the builder of the house. Chapter 3, verse 3. It's Jesus who did the work to establish a people or a house. He did the work to establish the family of God. And he then, in his faithfulness, was not only faithful to establish it, but he's faithful to maintain it. That's why chapter 3, verse 6 says that he is faithful over God's house as a son. He has a right as the firstborn, right, he, to be over God's house, but in being over God's house, he faithfully maintains God's house. He tends to us, in other words. As, as this theme builds throughout the book of Hebrews, you're going to find verses like chapter 7, verse 25, where the writer states, it's this Jesus, it's this faithful high priest who is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's always working on our behalf. He never stops. He's always at work 
for us in our weaknesses, in our trials, in our difficulties. He is faithful over God's house as this high priest. Or chapter 12, verse 2, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. For, our weakness, for all the weaknesses, for all the failings that we endure and go through, oh, here is the one who comes to us and tends to our faith, who tends to our confidence in him. In other words, he is one that is worthy of placing our faith in. Why? He is merciful and he is faithful to tend to us. True, persevering faith, this hope that makes it to the end will not be without its need for mercy, without its need for the faithful help of Christ. And therein, you, 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 you fall upon him. You look to him. He is the one who alone we must take hope in. We will only make it to the end with hope in Christ. So the question is, what are, you, what are you doing with Christ in the moment? What are you doing with Christ? Are you allowing Christ to inform your brokenness? Are you allowing Christ to inform your shame? Are you allowing Christ to tend to your heart? Now, it's important to see, with that being established, secondly, we see it's God's intention that our hope in Christ is maintained through the help of community. That our hope in Christ is maintained through the help of community. So we can only make it to the end with that hope in Christ, but also then with the help of community. It's God's, it's God's design. The author has in mind this, this house, this, this family, this community that, that would gather together, this, that they would do life together. At the center of this community, of course, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The community shares in Christ and is by definition a, a community then who has done nothing to actually belong to that community. What does that mean for us? That means for us that as we help one another, it's not as though one person stands over the next. We all belong in this community on the basis of the fact that we don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to be in this family. It's come as a gift to us, and therefore our relationships to one another can only be something of humility and compassion. It can only be something of considering one another more high than the other. We don't stand over one another because there's nothing that you did to be more significant than the other person within this community. We come as those who actually don't belong, but it's all on the basis of what Christ has achieved for us. Therefore, the church should be a community where there is humility, there is compassion. It should be. It should be the most humble and compassionate community on the face of the planet because it's this merciful and faithful high priest who has made a way for us to be a part of it. It's not done by way of our own achievements. So, there are two commands then in this text, verse uh, 12 and following. Two commands related to this community the first is to take care, as it says in verse 12, or be all the more aware 
lest there be any of, in any of you an unbelieving heart. In other words, he's saying, wake up to the fact that your hearts will inevitably drift at times. If your focus isn't on Christ, if you're not anchored into Christ, your hearts won't remain in some sort of place of neutrality. It will inevitably drift. And so the call is to say, take care. Recognize the fact that it's a real experience for individuals to drift away should they not be anchored into Christ. And the author obviously illustrates this by the Exodus account. Moses led God's people through the wilderness and to the rest of the promised land. But as we know, as the text is saying, many didn't make it. Many didn't make it to the promised land, although verse 9 says they, they had courtside seats for 40 years to the miraculous work of God. And they still, their hearts drifted, their hearts hardened, their hearts went away, drifted away from the Lord. Now in a real way, as the, as the writer here is saying, in a real way, Jesus is leading us through an exodus. He's leading us into his rest, a true promised land one day. And therefore, right now, we live in something of a wilderness experience. What we've experienced in the last week or more, really what we've experienced in the last week are symptomatic of long-term issues that have been going on. But the fact of the matter, it is like a wilderness experience. We have not arrived to some sort of rest. It is unrest. It is a wilderness experience where not only are we battling our own addictions and worship disorders, but we're facing this pandemic and we're facing the injustice and the racial tensions and the riots. It's a wilderness experience, which inevitably will become a direct assault upon our faith and our hope in Christ. And therefore, it's the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, take care, wake up. Get your eyes on what's really happening in these moments because with the pressures that are here, with the wilderness experience, your heart will inevitably drift if it's not anchored into Christ. I mean, the illustration is a boat out at sea. If it's not anchored, it will inevitably drift. And the author is saying, your heart is like a boat at sea. It will inevitably drift away from Christ if you're not anchored into Christ. So he's saying, community of faith, beware that your heart may drift from Christ. Beware that that's the trend that takes place. But second then, because our hearts drift, what are we supposed to do for one another? Well, verse 13 he says, exhort one another daily while it's called today. It's God's intention to have placed us in community with one another and therein to help one another make it to the end. And the question is, how are we to do this? Well, by giving and receiving words, exhortations, that get our eyes upon that merciful, faithful, high priest, Jesus Christ. It's the aim of the church to point one another to this only hope, the only hope that can actually get us to the end. And there's this urgency, do it daily while it's called today. 
while there is still time to cast yourself upon your, uh, his mercy and find help from this faithful high priest, cast yourself, get one another there, get one another to Christ. We need the help of one another. We are not intended as the body of Christ, as the church of Christ, to be separated. This pandemic, it, 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 it creates the feeling that, yes, we're a, we're a disembodied uh, corpse, if you will, right? We're, we're being pulled apart in different ways. But the point is that we are to be together. And one of the main things that we do as we gather is we stand with one another. We hear from one another, but we exhort one another. We point one another to this merciful, faithful high priest Jesus Christ. So the point is this, that we can only make it to the end with the hope of Christ and with the help of community. Now more specific then, he's building this this argument. Our hope must be in Christ. We need the, the help of community to keep us anchored into Christ. But finally, we will only make it to the end with a heart of confidence. So in verse 12 and 13, the author is specifically concerned not just about the external things of our existence. He's concerned about the heart. Just as we discussed earlier in this series, the heart is the fountainhead of life. It's the worship center of our being. Proverbs 4, if you remember, the heart must be diligently guarded. Why? Because out of it flows the rivers of life. In other words, it's always going to be reaching for something for ultimate satisfaction, for ultimate meaning and significance and security. It will take hope in something and inevitably carve out those deep life patterns, those life liturgies that are hard to break. And that's precisely what is being described here, especially in verse 13. You see it more clear. It says that sin deceives the heart. It's those idols that promise power and love and comfort and escape. They promise to satisfy what only God can. And remember, it's, it could even be good things that sin will say must be our ultimate thing. Our addictions are not just things that create bad consequences. Sometimes they're good things that we make ultimate things. But it's this deception, this sin that deceives the heart, that leads to then, verse 12, unbelief. Sin deceives the heart to the point of unbelief. It's the nature of this kind of heart drift. It's... It's the sin or the idol that begins to entice, that begins to make promises to us, promises that ultimately can't fulfill, but the more we entertain it, the more we begin to believe it. Remember, the problem of our hearts, as we've said in the past, is a problem of worship. And worship isn't just, again, like we did earlier here, It's not just raising our hands and singing songs. Worship is what I take hope in. It's what promises I choose to believe at the level of the heart. It's the heart belief, then, that will drive my actions. And the point here is that idols, sin, will deceive the heart 
and lead ultimately to unbelief. It will make promises that it can't fulfill, but our hearts will believe it and our behavior will reveal it. So, what's the point then? Well, it's the heart that must be anchored to Christ. We must give attention to our hearts, whether it's in our own personal relationship with the Lord or as is emphasized here in the community of faith with one another. We must tend to the nature of our hearts. Here's a few questions that may help us just kind of direct conversation to the level of the heart because sometimes we, we stand in community and we, we can kind of do the superficial talk. How are things going? What's going on? But at times, what this text is calling us to do, exhorting one another, why? Because our hearts will be drifting from Christ. We need to be exhorting one another to Christ. And how do we do that? What are the questions we should ask? Well, perhaps it looks like this. The first question being, what's the circumstantial struggle at hand? What are you going through? What's the things that are happening in your life right now that you seem to be struggling with? And once you've identified the circumstances going on, well, what is your heart wanting? What is your heart desiring? What is it fearing? What is it being tempted to believe? What are the lies that seem to be kind of coming up within your own heart? What's happening on the heart level? And then, of course, we go to the next. What does Jesus say about those things? What does Jesus say about those wants and those desires and those fears and those, those beliefs, those lies? What does Jesus say? Who is he for you in the midst of all those kind of things? What promises does he actually hold out to you? What is something as you, you follow the, the, the logic and the argument of chapter 3 is by the time you get through most of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 12, the author will remind us, for the word of God is living and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, yeah, we consider the circumstantial struggles, we, we diagnose the heart, what, what is the heart wanting, desiring, fearing, or believing, but then we get, okay, what, is, what does the word say? What does Jesus Say Because the truth of the matter will begin to bring discernment to the issues and struggles of the heart and not only bring discernment to it, but also give something of an answer to it. What does Jesus say? Who is he for me in the midst of this struggle? But then fourth, what does it look like to worship him? In this particular struggle in this particular circumstance what does it look like to worship him what kind of behavior aligns with the belief of who jesus is for me what does it look like to worship him remember this is where addictions are formed on the level of the heart just as we worship our way into addictions believing lies so we must begin addressing the heart with a confidence of in christ so that we can worship our way out. Folks, this then is, according to this text, the responsibility of every believer to one another, right? It's to be intentionally done in community, in conversation 
with one another. We are to help one another diagnose our hearts and rehearse something of the truth that Jesus is for us. As we do that, let's make sure that we realize that not everyone in the community gets equal access to the deep stuff of our hearts. Not everyone should have equal access, but some who you can talk through those things, they should have access. There shouldn't be anything completely kept away from exposure to the truth of Christ and also to the gentle care of believers around us. And we should also then keep in mind that the medium will be the message as well. So when we, when we come into relationship with someone who's, who's bearing their heart, and here's my struggles, we should be careful not to just get our gospel guns out and start, hey, this is what I know of Jesus, and here's this promise that you have to be believing. But if Jesus is that faithful and merciful high priest, then there should be something of faithfulness and patience and mercy embodied in us before we speak something of the truth of Christ to others. The medium must be the message. You must embody that message before you speak that message. Once again, all of this so that the heart might be slowly, progressively revived in a confidence in Christ. So how does the church, how does the Church of Addicts make it together to the end? With a hope in Christ that is applied with the help of community and done so at the level of the heart. This is how we'll make it together to the end. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the fact that you sent your son, the firstborn of many brethren, the one who has the right to stand over us and tend to us as your people. Thank you, Jesus, for your tender mercies. Thank you, Jesus, that you are constantly faithful to tend to us. You never miss a moment. You never miss a day. You never, you never get weary. You never falter. But you're consistently there with tender mercies, with faithful help for our souls. Thank you, Jesus, that you call us to hold on to you. But ultimately, our hold on you is a confidence that you are holding on to us. That you'll never let us go. You died on that cross for us. You paid the price, the propitiation for our sins. As the high priest, you became the sacrifice so that we might have relationship with you, so that we might come boldly into the throne room. That we could come, even as little children, with all our weaknesses and all our failings and all our stumbling, 
and you still invite us in. Thank you that you tend to us. But God, I do pray, I do pray that ah, this pandemic has been a tough time where we've been apart from one another and we've missed something of the blessing of just the care and encouragement that comes through just pointing one another to Jesus, to talking about what you're doing in our own hearts and lives, talking through the struggles, talking through the blessings, talking through the fact that you've just been faithful again and again. God, we thank you that you've placed us in to your body. <laughs> Didn't deserve it. Because we don't deserve it, there's plenty of room for compassion. There's plenty of room for humility. We'll say things we shouldn't say at times. We'll act in ways we shouldn't act. And yet you have us. Our significance is not in how well we even speak truth to one another, how we come alongside of one another. It's in you. It's in you alone. So even in our failings and even in our weaknesses as we tend to one another, you're, you're all the more there to teach us, to grow us together, so that we together might make it to the end. Scott, I pray is even as this pandemic seems, Lord willing, <laughs> seems to be lighting up and restrictions are, are lessened and we could spend more time together, God, I pray that there would be a focus on the heart. We can revel in you all the more. Keep us focused there. Keep us focused on your goodness, your care, your mercy, your faithfulness to us. We need you. We need one another. So we might make it to the end. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen.